listening to Unraveled, the Adverb Podcast. Welcome to Unraveled, the Adverb Podcast. With me are my co-presenters, Nina Kettiger, Swiss-French artist, and Philippe Indal, writer based in Berlin. My name is Bernard Vienna, and I am art historian, writer, curator, and founder of Artwerk. If there is one event in the art world that is able to attract everyone's attention, it is certainly the Venice Biennial. It can be kind of hard to keep track of all the shows and pavilions at the Venice Biennial, so to not leave you completely alone with a multitude of events, and emerging trends of the art world, we devoted two special episodes of Unravel to the 58th edition of the Biennial. During the preview, Philippe and Bernard interviewed the curator Charlotte Lobat, who invited Pauline Baudry and Renato Lorenz to exhibit in the Swiss Pavilion. Then we talked to Lorenzo Sandoval, one of the artists of the Finnish Pavilion, and we discussed their works, their views on collaboration, the national structure of the Banyol, and of course their respective roles as curators and artists. This will be followed by a second episode in which we speak with Irene Kempolmi, who's the co-curator of the Estonian Pavilion, and Dane Mitchell, who shows at the Pavilion of New Zealand. But first, let's hear a brief introduction of the Banyol. Bernard, can you tell us a little bit about the Biennial? Why is it so essential in the art landscape? Well, it seems now that most major cities have their own Biennial. But in fact, Venice is where it all started in 1895. 2019 marks the 58th edition. Well, you might say there is a mistake, but it's not a math error. Two Biennials didn't take place during World War I. And between 1942 and 1948, the art exhibitions were cancelled due to World War II and its consequences. Well, you said art exhibitions, but uh, are there other kinds of biennials in Venice? Yes, indeed. In the 30s, a music biennial began, then the theater and film festival, and finally the architecture biennial. As you probably know from the film festival, in every edition, a special jury awards the Golden Lion. We will see in the second episode of our Venice special that this prize was the subject of uncommon stories. I'm excited to hear more about this, but who won it this year? In fact, two lions are awarded. Um, Arthur Jaffa won as Best Artist in the Central Exhibition for his film The White Album, which is in equal measure an essay, a poem, and a portraiture reflecting upon the issue of race. For the national bonus, um, the jury uh, picked the pavilion of Lithuania. Does it mean that two different exhibitions take place within the biennial? There are, there are two main shows uh, in the central, the central exhibition on one side uh, and 87 national pavilions on the other. Um, which are still curated by different individuals or groups. 
In fact, there are many shows, if we count all the collateral venues in foundations and in palazzi across the city. Within the, the Biennale itself, one curator is appointed to helm the main venue. This year it is the American Ralph Rugoff, and he chose the title May You Live in Interesting Times. Another particularity this year is that he decided to bring works by the same artist to both the Arsenal and to the Central Pavilion. We should also point out that the Central Pavilion is situated in the center of the Giardini, uh, where you find the pavilions of the different nations as well. Right, but, but only of some of those nations, indeed. Those pavilions represent mostly Western nations. Most of the other countries have to rent spaces somewhere in the city, and these are pretty expensive. But we will discuss the question of the National Pavilion in more detail in the second episode. Despite of the many venues all over Venice, most of the visitors are like us and they begin in the Giardini, right? Yes, the Giardini is a popular place to start. Um, in addition to the central building, there are 30 national pavilions. To give an historical idea, the Belgian was the first one and, and was built in 1907. The latest one, the Austrian, Aus oh, sorry, the Australian, the Australian is a bit further behind, uh, opened in 1988. Right at the entrance, uh, there is a Swiss pavilion. We went straight away. Uh, to see the works of the artist Pauline Boudry and Renate Lorenz. Switzerland first participated in the Biennial in 1920, and, and since 1951, the Alpine country has its own pavilion in the Giardini. In the spirit of post-war modernism, the architect Bruno Giacometti, who is the brother of Alberto, the famous sculptor, designed a structure that creates kind of a fluid interchange between inside and outside. And unlike a lot of its neighbor from the pre-war years, the Swiss pavilion doesn't really make a monumental statement. You know, there are no giant columns or crazy stairs. Everything is leveled and easily accessible. And this year, the building hosts an installation and a video work by a Berlin-based artist duo, Pauline Boudry and Renato Lorenz. The immersive piece turned the entire pavilion into a club, very dark, very loud music. And the, this whole representation has been curated by Charlotte Lobar, and she's the director, the head of the art school in Geneva. Um, and she researches, you know, the use value of art and the impact of the digital and how and which kind of cultural changes did that really bring about. Charlotte was also the director of the Museum for Contemporary Arts in Bordeaux. And among many other curatorial positions, she was also the artistic director of the Nuit Blanche in Paris, which is an all night festival that has always been dedicated to performance and art. Bernard and Philippe met Charlotte during the opening of the Salon Suisse, another venue organized by Pro Helvetia, which is a Swiss foundation for culture. The interview took place in the Venice School of Art, which is why the recording might be a little noisy, but it was really insightful. And for additional documentation, you can always find some pictures on our website. <laughs> 
So the first question uh, might be about like the title itself and uh, moving back backward because we were wondering what about it was related to if it was like maybe this nostalgical aspect or an utopian one or maybe an economical one and so how, how was your thought about it? I think it's all at the same time actually this is why it's interesting this expression it starts with Pauline and Renate being interested in this story they heard about this Kurdish woman from the guerrilla who are as you know fighting and in order uh, and they wear the shoes reverse in order to fool the enemies when they walk they go in one direction but with the shoes reversed it seems that they're walking on the other direction Pauline and Renate thought oh that's interesting because they were thinking about what the the actual regression that we are uh, experimenting on a political and social level right now worldwide it's not something particularly Swiss actually and uh, then they decided to really uh, looked at the different senses of this moving backward expression, you know, this backwardness, what it means. And it's very interesting because uh, what is at stake in the film, all its meaning, like backwardness for, uh, for us, Occidental people, it means a regression, you know. But for people from other places, with other culture, it can't really mean something else. And actually you can uh, see how much it is linked to our obsession with a linear time heading towards progress, an infinite progress. And we know that this vision that Occident has imposed to the rest of the world has some dead hands. So we have moving backwards anyway, because the dead hands are here. If you think of the ecological disaster we're creating because of this vision and everything. So that's one point. Then they were really interested about how concretely we move backwards. I mean, what does it mean moving backwards physically, you know? And that's how they started to think, they were thinking of this woman, the Kurdish woman walking, and then they started to think about all these other backward movements, and it brought them to dance at some point, obviously, because, I mean, when we do backward movements, it's mostly into the realm of dance, actually, and it's specific dance. What is interesting in the, in the project is that it's not any dance, it's like dance that, I, I mean, they are brought by the, the performers because of their background, but they choose this performance because of their background. So it's really about postmodern dance against classical dance, which is all about, about going forward. It's going to be about hip-hop, and hip-hop is a critique of, you know, the hegemonic white culture, and uh, there's also other dance involved like as I could see like buto dance uh, you know this Japanese dance from the post-war I mean we call it the post-atomic war so it's really dance that are expressing an opposition to another system which is hegemonic or dance are really expressing some kind of a dissent or resistance to and that's how things combine at some point between like the political background of the project and the body Uh, it's the most physical one, so... Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, in this film, what is interesting also is that it's the first film of Pauline and Renate where they don't speak, nobody speaks. 
And you can see that because the perform at some point they have the, the, the micro and they decide not to speak. And I, uh, for me, it's really related to the reactionary time. We are in a time where, because of the internet and the social networks, we, it, the uh, new forms of speech has arise, which is very simplistic, you know, that also gave birth to these new hate speeches that we thought we, they were on the side of our history. So we are going really backward with that. And the, the, the bet of Pauline and Renato in this project is maybe we should leave the uh, words in, and try to find new way of communicating through bodies and that's how they go to dance and that's how they go to the nightclub. I, that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately about mm -hmm. club culture and how to exhibit it because um, as you may know there's at the moment I know of three major exhibitions that deal with club culture and I think they are two ways to go about it, a sort of way that wants to create an immersive state and another that tries to create a distance. Maybe you can say something about how to exhibit club culture. I mean, I'm from this generation that, I mean, I've been raised with techno music, you know, so I've been thinking a lot about that, of course. It's not the first time uh, it's behind some of my projects and actually... Uh, Well, I, I mean, what is interesting with Pauline and Renate is that they immediately say it's not really a club, it's an abstract club. I would say it's a meta club, let's say. It's just giving enough twist to feel like you're in a club, but it always brings you to the fact that you are not participating in an illusion, you know. So I like the balance in the project because it's... Um, You have, uh, you know, you go from the backside of a stage, you know, and the stage is, has been an element recurrent in the work of Pauline and Renato. It's more like the gay club stage, you know. And uh, you see the video, and at some point, when the curtain arrives and flashes, then you realize, yeah, you are yourself on stage. So there's never, and at the end of the, of the project, you have the image cut and then you have the light show as if the lights and the stage were dancing basically so actually it and then sorry I continue huh? but then you go from the corridor and you go in the other room and then you arrive at the back of a bar you know and it's a bar you understand it's a decor because you you really you see the wood structure and then you go on the side and you have the bar but it's no I mean that's not a real bar there's nothing to drink you know and but you see all these trompe-l'oeil paintings of different bars and it's the favorite bar of Pauline Renate so it's very specific there And so there's always this thing of you get into the work and immediately you you are pushed back. So you understand your part. The mise à distance is there, basically, you know. You or you. So you. What I like very much with these projects is that you you complete to you completely share the emotion, but at a, a very regular time you bounce back and you understand. With the distance, you understand that you are uh, participating. I mean, you you are interpreted, interpreting a, a representation, basically. You mean that they were like uh, no speech inside the video, yeah. but like I had the impression that the writing 
was really present. So may you maybe develop a bit about like the place of writing in this pavilion. Hello. Uh, I would say there's not much writing, but there's a lot, a lot of communication. And the communication from the video part is going, coming from bodies, you know? It's very interesting, you know, each performer has its own solo, and at some point they, they start to share and synchronize. And when they start to synchronize, the music arrives, you know? And then immediately you have this emotional, you know, empathy uh, that's function, you know. I mean, synchronicity of dance is really interesting because this is how you communicate with bodies and that's why it's so important. And the whole project is about that. After you have the deep house music, you know, which is the music of the LGBT club, basically. And they wanted really to address that very specifically because it's DJ Sprinkle music, you know. So really, I mean, you want to dance at some point, yourself as a viewer. And this is the, the point. The point is that the club is where people can communicate through bodies and they feel re related. And this is uh, really, this is really the point. The, you, you, can't you can create a community, even if it's ephemeral, but you, you beyond differences, because then you share, you care for people you have, I mean, you might not ever see in your life on the other side, and this is the beauty of the project, I think. And how come the choice to make it more or less participative? Because we might have imagined like the bar as an active bar, where people might have get drinks, for instance. I think it was to the 90s. <laughs> I mean, I'm coming from the relational aesthetics, so I know all about it, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, it was uh, it was too easy. I like the. I mean, we wanted to keep the experience into some form of ambiguity. You know, you never know exactly where you are, and uh, and we wanted the people to really get interested on the journal. You know, so yeah, we didn't want to put too much scenario in this place of the bar. Yeah, when I was speaking about writing, I was thinking about the journal. So maybe like you could develop a bit on this letter. Again, you feel like participating because it's letters addressed to the viewer, you know, so you immediately get the thing that it's for you. And also the way, I think it's very smart, these letters. And they've been doing that for a long time already. But it's, it brings a level of communication, which is more immediate, you know, even if the ideas are important and everything. It's not too theoretical in some way. And so you rely to it very quickly, actually. And these letters, so that's... And these letters were written by different people. You have choreographers, you have artists, you have a theoretician, you have activists. And they're coming from very different backgrounds and different places in the world, you know, in order to really address this backwardness from different points of view and to show the, you know, polysemy of the, the notion, you know. This is it, you know, you can't communicate with Pete because we've been, so, you, I mean, you are addressing the, the, the politics of affect, basically, so, and the politics of affect that we experience through the so social networks. It has to go through embodiment within the realm of an art experience. And then afterwards, you have the theory. 
I think that's the real, really interesting particularity of the Swiss pavilion is that you have like this maybe first more emotional aspect and then the cognitive one. But like when a visitor is going through a biennale, he has a lot of stimulation. And I was wondering how you bring him to read this journal. Well, as you could see in the in the uh, the the room up on the, in the garden, I mean, we don't know where we are. We see this bar; it's not a sculpture completely. It sounds like a decor, but it's a bit deceptive, and so you don't have anything to, you know, really. Uh, it's not an exhibition per se over there, and we have the, all this pile of, you know, journal. We we created these benches everywhere, and in the biennial, you know, it's very difficult to find benches actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like because you have uh, you have this because uh, there is this national character, mm. and what we hear at in the press conference uh, from Pauline and Renate uh, that they were like really as well critic against the institution, and it seems that as curator you have a bit this role between like the institution and the artist. So how did you deal with that? When when I was nominated to to create the pavilion, the first question I had before saying yes was like how much critical the project can be. We know how artists are. I mean, it's normal. You are representing a country. How much do you... Are you happy with representing a country? You know, it's complicated. And um, Paul Vessia, they said to me that, I mean, they were okay for everything. The only thing... The limit was uh, at critic at personam. That means like criticizing somebody in specific. Which is okay, you know, I mean, it's already something, you know, so that was nice, I thought. And, I mean, during the whole preparation of the project, I could see how much, I mean, I was very happy to see how much Paul Bessia did trust us, because when you read the letter of the artist, it's quite tough, you know, and they accepted it. So that means we really had a lot of freedom to do the project. There's something we were wondering about a lot and uh, about this concept of a pavilion representing a nation. And we were wondering where's the specificity of this project for the Swiss pavilion. When you will become the curator of the Swiss pavilion, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be really annoyed by the Swissness question. <laughs> but I will reply to it. <laughs> so, uh, of course, you have to think about that. And I love Swiss art and Swiss folklore. I'm a big fan of Valentin Caron. I'm a, like, I mean, but I wanted to do something that was addressing something broader than Switzerland, actually. And my, I mean, I live in Geneva since six years, you know. And I mean, I have a very specific experience of what is Switzerland from a Geneva point of view. And Geneva is a city where you have 48% of foreign use, you know. I mean, it's a very special place, you know. And it's a place where you are, on a daily basis, more dealing with, you know, big issues of the world than with what's happening in this valley uh, because, like, you know, the price of the milk is rising or something like that, which is important too, huh? I don't uh, diminish it. but So... For me, this project is more Geneva, and actually what is interesting also is Pauline was, I mean, did the art school of the Geneva, and she did the class of Catherine Kellos, and Catherine Kellos uh, implemented the first, you know, curatorial politics 
project in a Swiss art school, and that was really avant-garde at that time. I'm talking about the 90s, you know, and you can feel that in the work, you know. And that's so for me, there is something Swiss, but it may be not the, the postcard Swiss we know, but it's more like the Geneva Swiss, you know, very political, bit critical, and looking at what's happening in the world. The critical aspect of the pavilion I have maybe something to do as well with the vision of the art that you are as well as at least communicating in the press release. Uh, you are highlighting the use and value of the art. Uh, could you maybe explain us a bit for you what is this use and value of art? I'm more and more annoyed by the way how you know occidental aesthetic is framing the power of art you know and is framing to i mean it's so narrow and i think also in the art world we went to some dead hands because we've, pu we've been pushing the boundaries of this narrowness you know which is uh, i mean the the object to contemplate and become fetishized and then we feel like at the church in the museum and uh, And, um, and I think art has more agency than that, you know, and I'm very much interested about how an artwork can be a social actor, you know, and, and, be, and has a role in society. It's like, it's really, it's really, I mean, for me, it's embody, it's a person, you know, I mean, you, you always project intention to an artwork, you know, and I think this is the most interesting part of art, actually, and it gives more legitimacy to art in within society when you take it from this point of view instead of, you know, reifying the object in a, you know, white church, you know. I mean, it's nice too, huh? but it's one of the power of art, I would say. Uh, so I was I was uh, wondering how can you speak as well to uh, another kind of public who is not going to the to the museum, for instance. In the case of Venice Biennale, I think we, we, we of course I mean our experience is the one of the you know, the, op the opening days. So yeah, like you have like thirty thousand people from the art who are coming from everywhere in the world. But actually, the Venice Biennale, I mean, it's. It's 650,000 people, you know, and from this number, you have 400,000 people visiting the Swiss pavilion. So it's much broader than the, uh, just the art and even the art lovers, you know, it's really broad. And uh, from, you have to think that about 200,000 are people that are coming from schools or university, I mean, a young audience and that's where I think we have a responsibility you know I think it's very important for us for example to address this issue of queerness for example uh, for this young audience you know it's a very when you realize that you might not fit to you know binary gender it's a horrible moment when you realize that you know you have people that will never understand you anymore because you are in this case you know so I think it's really important to show that it's possible and uh, that we're hoping that society is going to evolve very much on this topic for example thanks so much The 
first week is always a marathon of opening exhibitions and dinners and so on. So Philip and Bana met the second guest, Lorenzo Sandoval, under more adventurous circumstances in a back alley close to the Giardini. But let's give some more information on Lorenzo Sandoval first. The artist Lorenzo Sandoval is part of the Miracle Workers Collective, which is a group of artists, filmmakers, curators, and activists that has responded to an open, an open call and that has been selected by a jury of five people from the international art world to curate the Finnish pavilion. In the jury statement, it says that the collective's proposal, quote, brings a fresh and innovative approach towards cultural producers in Finland while addressing urgent global issues, end of quote. And that's true. Upon entering the Alvar Alto Design Pavilion, there's an undeniably specific Finnish take on issues that concern the entire world. Let's take the collective itself. It consists of artists from all around the world, and yet, for instance, the marginalized ethnic group of the Sami is a presence in the pavilion. Not only does a row of traditional walking canes lead the way into the exhibition, traditional Sami songs and tales are presented in the central video of the show. So, of course, Lorenzo Sandoval is no stranger to collaboration or to the design of exhibition space. The artist, who was born in 1980 in Madrid, lives in Berlin, and his work is centered around spatial storytelling. Lorenzo actually calls himself an amateur architect, and in his installation, he explores international power relation. He's also a founder of the Institute for Endotic research, which is also a project space dedicated to the endotic, which means the opposite of the exotic, and thus the strange environment we find ourselves in every day. Let's hear the conversation with Lorenzo. We were thinking about um, things like nationality mm -hmm. and how nations are represented, mm -hmm. and we thought it's kind of a weird concept and kind of an anachronistic concept but then we saw the Finnish pavilion we thought there's a lot of sort of culturally specific things in the pavilion so maybe um, you could tell us a little more about that and help us with our confusion what are those elements well actually like one of the points about thinking national identities with the pavilion it's going through them and in the work of Otis it's uh, very apparent like since she's literally through these like uh, Sami walking sticks, mm -hmm. they, they, they go before and after the pavilion, so crossing this line of the enclosement of the nationality. That's uh, very particular in the Sami culture because actually they are not a nation, uh, but a huge community that is crossing uh, different nations as it happened with the, with the Basque uh, in Spain and France or, or many other communities. So, so then, I mean, like together with Oti, uh, that she's working with the, the Sami, and also with another project that she's, she was bringing with few activists to the iterations. And for example, the iteration in Berlin, they were talking about the rematriation, uh, like it's like these hats uh, from the Sami that was uh, the under Brandenburg Stiftung presented. The proposal is also like to like bring uh, these items back to where, where they belong. 
But how does how does this constellation like to come together? Because you are not only artists; mm -hmm. there are like as well architects, yeah. critics, mm -hmm. curators. So, who decided to bring you together, mm -hmm. and how? Yeah, maybe I'm just gonna finish with the question of the nationalities. Like, like I wanted to add also, like all this, like a um, kind of like paradigmatic case of the, as part of the constellation. But if you look at the origins of the members, that like, they have like very different uh, familiar constellations that they are expand uh, through few places in 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 Africa. Also, like Giovanna is from Mexico and David myself who I'm from Spain so actually uh, like the question of the identity uh, it's presented first as a questioning of the national construction inside of the biennial itself but uh, secondly also like rethinking what could be like a community made uh, from Apollo's wheat so made of many different backgrounds so to say so in that sense like the whole proposal it's actually like crossing different storytellings and different approaches like also reflect as we were saying now like with like different uh, professions so they are like, like choreographers writers creators architects photographers and so on and so forth so i think like there is like, this question of understanding like the identity as a process like as a something that that uh, it's composed through time uh, but uh, essentially it really thinks about what it means like to bring differences together but we see as well like those ticks mm -hmm. we see in the video itself a lot of finnish mm -hmm. references mm -hmm. so how far could you bring together this ambition of the finnish cultural ministry mm -hmm. to represent the interest of Finland mm -hmm. and your vision as artists mm -hmm. to go beyond mm -hmm. those uh, nationalities well there was like when we presented the projects uh, that was like the jury that was that was actually like the question they were they were making like how this project does to do with Finland mm -hmm. and the answer we did it was like uh, we are not interested in thinking about Finland per se but more like rethinking at like, these problems with nation and identity especially in these times where fascism is rising up in this way and the identities they are back these kind of closed identitarian processes like talk about the pureness and so on and so forth so so in that sense uh, like the departure point it's finland because it's a finnish pavilion but i think it's something that could be thought uh, from many other locations i think finland is really particular in this case because it's first of all a very young nation mm. and it's always been sort of between Russia and Europe and particularly Sweden and it still has two official languages right Swedish and Finnish and um, uh, and yet as you said there's the this true Finns uh, this party that's on the rise in Finland so that's a particularly interesting thing and is it that you try to create a multitude of voices from that space yeah absolutely yeah the, to have like a series of pluripocal positions inside of the group it's very fundamental But I think that how you just describe Finland, uh, you can apply to most of the Europe, uh, European countries. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about Spain, there are like four languages, not to talk about the Arab editors and the Arab people living in Spain, who are oftenly not from the national narrative. It's the same uh, with England, uh, when they are like, I think like 29 or 27 degrees of nationality, including all the people from the Commonwealth same with France like when you think about the 
Martinique or, or the other African colonies uh, that's there as well yeah and, and I think like most of the countries in Europe even they some of them they have centralized structures they are all like shaped uh, by the relations the relations with the in one hand with the colonies uh, but also like the inner cultural differences among different nations that they are enclosed in each country so in that sense like the reflection again it's going from Finland but uh, it's something I, yeah, I would say that you could apply for many countries and as a matter of fact there's like a gesture like it was decided during the process, which I think it's uh, very, very um, humble, but uh, very strong, that it was changing, you know, at the entrance on the Alto, Alto Pavilion, there is like Finland, and now it was covered with plants, and it's only Britain land. So, so I think that gesture, like, like also it's like a very good metaphor for many other things of the process of how we were approaching this construction. But how came all those gestures and this common work because there's like at least 15 people really involved as artists and people named mm. as the main protagonist of the pavilion mm. so how did it work what was the process well i think i mean for example like this had the word uh, collective there uh, but i think it's important maybe to think about these processes that they were more collective and other like they were more individual so to say And I think that's very important because to rethink what collective work could mean, it's very important right now because, for example, like now this morning I was listening to, to a lecture on the symposium organized by Xavi of a Brazilian uh, psychiatrist who works with theater. And what he was, he was talking about, it's like now in Brazil, the resistance is made by the groups, so by the collectives, so to say, because that's the parties that are not uh, doing what they should be doing or they are not parties representing the people and inside the small groups doing this work so, so I think it's important to bring back this notion of collectivity but also like try to rethink the collectivity not as a um, brick which is like normally like a collective people would think about but actually like as a common space where the multiplicity of positions they could be uh, unfold and in this way like that's a little bit what has been happening with the, with the different positions which as you were pointing out They are extremely different, no? Uh, but I think you can find uh, overlappings with the different ideas that we are working with. It's written in the press release that you are making or trying to make a form of collective disobedience. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, what is for you collective disobedience? Well, I think it's, it's very clear uh, when it comes to thinking about the national representation. So, yeah, like, again, like with this piece of OD, like going beyond the pavilion, like crossing the pavilion through, I think that's a very good metaphor of what we're trying to do. And I think also it's like a way of proposing like certain ideas that like, could be clues of, of some of the things. Like, for example, in my case with my work, what I'm doing with this movable membrane, that it's like referring to one part of the conversations where we're happening, like it's using the cells as a metaphor for, for osmotic interchange. But also like for me, it's like how to unfix the space. So basically what I'm proposing with this piece, that it's very simple because at the end it's like a very functional element. But what I want to do is like to try to bring a series of elements that you can recombine and generate with them different situations. And at the end, I mean, it's this modular structure to be used as, as seeds, uh, cells, etc. Uh, but because of the design they have, they are never ended. They, they are not in a final form. So for me, the refusal 
of having something that is final. That's a way of disobedience. Like that when we think about product politics, uh, discussions, academic writing, and so on and so forth. So I think like it's important to translate uh, these ideas of the porosity in the togetherness to to physical elements that could allow this disobedience. So in a sense, it's as well a, a form of process, this uh, collaboration, if I understand well. Um, so do you plan to continue a uh, form of collaboration with, with those people? Is it like uh, an ongoing process? Well, like so far now, like uh, it's all planned in November. So there are like these like, two other iterations that it's going to be happen, happening. Yeah, and then inside of the collective, there are like like synergies that they are happening, like the collaborations they are like coming from, from before and there are like a series of conversations inside of the collective. Also it's like difficult like, to imagine like to have the conditions again for the same people that like, we keep working together. So it's hard to uh, predict what's gonna happen with that. But yeah I think they are like, like in Europe within the, the members of the of the group there are, there are all these conversations that point to future collaborations. There's one more important thing, the name of the collective. Um, what can you tell me about that? It's the Miracle Workers, right? Mm -hmm. Miracle Workers Collective. Well, that uh, translates like basically into this idea of trying to think the impossible. Like trying to be beyond of what uh, we know that normally it's presented as the, as the possible. And they like to try to go beyond. Like for me also, like I took like a particular thinking on it like when I, in the text uh, having the publication and basically for me it's uh, this idea of the miracle I was linking it to, to this idea of like breaking the normal habits and then also like to think instead of the exhibition uh, think about the encounters because if the exhibition uh, it's like the ex habitare like ex habitus like, like that line of thinking Yeah, then uh, for me the encounter actually would be uh, breaking the habits, like to produce or propose like new habits or spaces or atmosphere that could facilitate yeah, all the um, possibilities, like point out to this impossible. Thank you so much. <laughs> It sounds like Venice is well worth a visit this year. And that's it for this episode. Please find photographs, information about the works, pavilions, and more on our website, www.art-verk.ch. Verk is written W-E-R-K. The second part of our Venice special will be released on the 7th of July. And that episode will explore the history of the Banyol and more national pavilions. We present exclusive interviews of Dane Mitchell, the artist who represents New Zealand, and Irene Kempolmi from the curatorial team of the Estonian Pavilion of the Estonian Pavilion that features Chris Lemsalu. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. This was Unraveled, the Advec podcast. The show is hosted by Bernard Vienna, Philippe Henda, and Nina Kettiger, myself. It is produced by Adverk. Our theme song and jingle were produced by artist and musician Laura Katzauer. As we're starting new with the podcast, please send comments and suggestions to unraveled at art-verk.ch. Verk is written W-E-R-K. You can find all images of the works and informations discussed in this episode on our page, wwwart 
minusverk.ch. If you would like to advertise or sponsor one episode, please write at contact at art-verk.ch.